0: So not everyone who's trans is trans like within the binary. So some people might identify as like female to male, a trans man. Some people might just identify as trans. So not with the gender they were assigned at birth. Some people might identify as trans masculine. Some people might identify as trans non-binary. There's no set way to be trans.
1: Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health. My name is Cara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. This episode is part one of UterX, a multimedia project produced in collaboration with Ask Me About My Uterus for the 2016 Stanford Medicine X ePatient Storyteller track. In these Uterex episodes, I'll be talking to In Sickness and In Health junior and senior uterus correspondents, Charlie Blotner and Abby M. Norman. We'll be talking about broadening the conversation around gynecological healthcare to include more than just lady problems. If you're new to In Sickness and In Health, welcome. This is a podcast where I talk to people about their relationships with their bodies and issues at the intersections with chronic illness, disability, healthcare, and mortality. I usually make the following disclaimer at the beginning of every episode. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. Every patient is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying." While that disclaimer doesn't apply directly to what we're talking about in the Uterx episodes, much of the same can be said about gender. Like Charlie was talking about in the clip at the top of the show, Everyone's experience of their gender is different, and there is no quote-unquote right way to be who you are. In this episode, Charlie and I discuss issues related to accessing gynecological health care for transmasculine individuals. We talk about coverage exclusions for transition-related care, gynecological cancer rates, and the exclusionary nature of the gendered language surrounding reproductive health issues. If you're interested in hearing more about accessing health care as a trans-masculine person with chronic health issues, you can go back and listen to episode 27 of In Sickness and In Health. Among other things, I talked to S. Lee Thompson about the hurdles to diagnosis he's faced as a trans person with complex health issues and healthcare insecurity. In addition to being an e-patient delegate on the storyteller track and junior uterus correspondent for In Sickness and In Health, Charlie is a 2016 MedX student advisor, co-moderator of the Brain Tumor Social Media Twitter Chats, and a Cure Forward Precision Medicine team member. You can find resources and more from us in the show notes and on the project page at insignispod.com uterx. That's U-T-E-R-X. Follow In Sickness and In Health on social media at InSicknessPod, and you can keep up with the podcast by subscribing to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes because it helps other people find us. We recorded this conversation over Skype back in July when it was still too hot to record without the air conditioner on. So I do apologize about the audio quality on this. There's also a few things that we talked about that didn't make it into the episode and so many more things that we didn't get a chance to talk about at all. So when we got the chance to meet up in Palo Alto right before the official start of MedX 2016, we wanted to record a little bit more about that. So you had this very interesting experience of listening back to yourself while you were transcribing, and uh, I, I just, I want you to talk a little bit about that and
0: what it was like to hear yourself. Yeah, uh, so while I was transcribing uh, the podcast, I as I was going through uh, and, you know, listening to what we were saying, uh, I realized that I had completely pretty much erased the, not just uh, trans women or the trans feminine community, but um, everything related to women and femininity in my language and when describing the trans community. And part of me wonders if that's intentional kind of separating myself from femininity as a part of my kind of identity. And as you know as a part of my trans masculine identity and a part of me also predominantly um you know when i kind of sat with that and thought about it further was really horrified um at just kind of the how easy and how common it is um and by it i mean the the erasure of trans women um, and how, how I didn't even realize it, um, at the time and how, um, you know, I went on and on for, uh, we probably talked for, for an hour or so in total. It was two hours. <laughs> two hours. So we talked, we talked for two hours and every example that I gave, every, um, explaining of terminology, everything was all centered around masculinity and you know the, the point of view that I can speak to is one of transmasculine experience, and so I wonder if that was because I was trying to only speak um, for and from my experience, or if that was just kind of how, as I kind of come more into my masculinity, I am unfortunately, and as that I was contributing to that erasure, um, and so that was really. Um, kind of eye-opening to to listen to and to sit with yeah yeah and I like I said to you it's we
1: can learn so much uh about ourselves and our our worldview and um how and how we can't all say the right things at the right time and we can't always even when we're trying to be inclusive um we can't be talking about everyone all the time and I, I, I also said to you that I would prefer you to speak from your own experience than to try and speak for someone that you're not. Um, I have been planning for a long time to get some trans women on the show. I've had you know, some some difficulties with booking, but you helped set me up with uh, someone that you know, and it's definitely on my agenda to speak with with more trans women, people who come from the trans feminine community. One thing that we didn't talk about, that we didn't get a chance to talk about because we talked about so much, um, is transphobic violence and what an issue that is.
0: Yeah, it's an issue. You know, I I don't really know how much more I can say than there are times during every day when um, I have to go to the bathroom that uh, I'm afraid to go to the bathroom, so I just don't go to the bathroom when I'm in a public place. Or... um, But as as a masculine uh, person who presents um, very outwardly um, masculine, I... Would say that I have a much less chance of being attacked on the street or getting, you know, verbally harassed or physically harassed than a trans woman would. Um, so, while in this podcast, we, this episode, you know, we all, we predominantly and pretty much only talk about trans masculine experience, uh, I think it's important that we acknowledge that trans women and trans feminine identifying people uh, have in my opinion have it a lot more difficult than transmasculine trans male identifying people um, because it's a lot easier for um trans masculine people to to blend in in public it's like a very opinion based thing like well, i would say that trans women have it so much harder than trans men because of in this like male dominated society and in this like patriarchy regardless of if the like trans men... Um, transition like, medically or not. If he, they're still like dressing masculinely and have like short hair, it's a lot more easier for them to like navigate the street. Um, than it would be for a trans woman who just in general as a woman is more likely to be harassed um, much less than if someone is trying to or has like read them as trans on the street. I've said this before,
1: I'll say it again, I am planning to do a series on violence as a public health issue and transphobic violence. I am planning to give uh, dedicate an entire episode to, because it is quite an issue. The other topic that I at least wanted to touch on, um, obviously, with what we're doing right now, we can't really get uh, very in-depth on it, but the economics of transitioning, it is something that is not accessible to everyone
0: uh, for financial reasons. Definitely, definitely, yeah. And even uh, obviously medical, medically transitioning is something that I think the first people first think to. um, They think to not being able to afford to transition and so whether that's uh, surgery, hormones, um, that type of stuff. But even uh, when it comes to socially transitioning, Um, That means, you know, buying new clothes that match, um, you know, your your gender expression. That means um, maybe getting a different backpack that goes with your um, more masculine or feminine aesthetic. That means, um, you know, getting a haircut. That means things that you might not normally think are... um, expenses that would relate to a transition, but they are. And um, I all of this goes without saying how
1: uh, socially transitioning might affect your employment or your job prospects.
0: Yeah, well, so then even, even if the person, if they're not able to medically transition but they're socially transitioning, or if they are medically transitioning, or regardless of whatever kind of transition that they're making... That can affect their employment status, you know, if they get fired for being trans, and then that affects their ability to have housing if they don't have an income anymore, and then that affects their ability to... Um, health insurance. <laughs> health insurance, yeah, and food, place to sleep. Yeah, transitioning affects, affects every single part of your life, whether you realize it that it does directly or not. So it's not just medical it's also financial and it's not just financial it's also housing and it's not just housing it's also food and it's not just food it's also your job and it's not just your job it's also your family and it's everything everything gets impacted so charlie where can people find you uh they can find me on twitter at at c-b-l-o-t-n-e-r underscore We hope you enjoy this episode. Something that I was thinking about when I was looking at the photos too is that, you know, obviously people are choosing to share um, the types of photos that they're sharing, but some people are, you know, looking at the camera straight on, some people have their backs turned, some people are covering up certain parts of their bodies, and so when... I saw that I kind of start started to think about the different you know gender affirming surgeries and who has access to those and who doesn't. I started to think about that, you know. They're still predominantly not covered by insurance companies. These surgeries and providers still aren't really categorically required to cover transition related care. So um, mm-hmm. that includes hormones, um, you know, mental health services, and um, especially not gender affirming surgeries.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people think that the Affordable Care Act made that illegal, which it it's like a gray area, not totally true. Um, based on the Affordable Care Act, healthcare providers cannot deny trans people appropriate preventative care, but providers are not required to cover the transition-related stuff, which includes hormone therapy, mental health services, and gender-affirming surgeries, which is just Bananas. I mean, the whole like mental health care thing and like getting covered or not covered by insurance is a whole separate can of worms. But the fact that like mental health services for trans people are not part of preventative care is ridiculous because there is so much like social. I said I wasn't going to swear, but like bullshit (laughs) (laughs) that like. I mean, everyone needs mental health care services and, you know, uh, dealing with transition either before, during, or after, like, there's a lot of, like, mental health stuff. There's very new research, because obviously this is a, a, a subject that hasn't gotten a lot of funding or attention previously, but newer research is showing that, like, trans kids that have their gender affirmed... From a young age, have the same or similar mental health outcomes as cisgender kids, right. but because so many trans people have to deal with transphobia and transphobic violence, and you know just all sorts of stuff um, throughout their lifetime, and a lot of that is internalized, and it just that can cause a lot of serious mental health issues, including a suicide rate that I think is four times higher. Than the general population, I, that might be an incorrect statistic. Right. Ooh, uh, I really dropped the ball on the statistics here, which, if you're a regular listener to the show, I'm sure is no surprise. I never get the numbers right. But according to a report from the Williams Institute and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention about the findings of the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, 41% of trans or gender nonconforming respondents have attempted suicide. Compare that with 4.6% of the overall population who self-reported a suicide attempt. According to the survey, trans men are the most impacted with 46% reporting an attempt in their lifetime. Trans women reported a rate of about 42%. These rates also vary by race and ethnicity. More than half of all American Indian and Alaskan Native respondents have attempted to take their own lives, with Black and Latinx trans communities close behind at 45% and 44%, respectively. Asian, Pacific Islander, and white respondents who had the lowest rates self-reported suicide attempts at a rate that was still almost nine times the national average. You can find a link to this report called Suicide Attempts Among Transgender and Gender Nonconforming Adults in the show notes, and on that show page at insicknesspod.com uterx. If you're currently in crisis or know someone who is, please contact the Trans Lifeline at 877-565-8860 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255.
0: And so, think about it. If your if your kid's trans, or if you're trans, you have essentially, you know, one in two chance, um, you know, of attempting suicide in your lifetime. Um, I don't like those odds. You know, not no. Me, not those anyone. are not good odds. Um, so, if if healthcare, um, you know, if if getting access to healthcare can do something to change that, then
1: yeah. Well, last. March, I don't, like March 2015, a trans man in Minnesota won a victory in federal courts that determined that healthcare providers and hospitals accepting federal Medicare and Medicaid funds are subject to the Affordable Care Act's prohibition of discrimination based on sex, which extends to trans individuals. So that actually sets a really important precedent. Unfortunately, a lot of states actually still do currently enforce coverage exclusions Mm -hmm. um, in Medicaid and Medicare for trans-related care. Um, Mm -hmm. But in September, the federal government actually proposed rules, which have not yet been implemented, (laughs) that would also ban uh, such exclusions in nearly all plans nationwide. Now, given how the Affordable Care Act saga has played out you know the federal government can certainly propose something and then have it turn out quite different
0: we also have to think about um you know navigating health insurance in the context of um if a trans person has their gender marker changed or not Mm -hmm. um because that kind of creates a whole other whirlwind Um, So if someone was assigned female at birth, and so they had the gender marker F on their license, and they had it legally changed to um, marker M for male, then that person um, is no longer um, eligible to have their gynecological care covered by their insurance. And the reason being, um, on paper, an insurance company would reject the claim that a cisgender male would need gynecological care. But trans men do
1: right, yeah. Well, again, thanks to the Affordable Care Act, uh, this this kind of like a double-edged sword because it and this links in with the kind of gendered wording regarding gynecological care Mm -hmm. um, and it being a quote-unquote women's issue. That under the Affordable Care Act, all insurance plans must cover a quote-unquote well woman visit, which is your (laughs) yearly yearly gynecological exam. And I have issues with that term for a number of reasons. Like, even I, as a cisgender woman, like, am not a well woman (laughs) for any circumstances. Uh, And, you know, those those visits don't extend to trans women Mm -hmm. either. So, yeah, that's a whole mess. And that's just based on semantics alone, you know, and based on... I mean, insurance companies will use any excuse to deny care. Yeah. So, I mean, receiving gynecological care for a lot of transmasculine people can be something that's really emotionally fraught, right?
0: Yeah. And so, um, a lot of times, you know, if you think about, um, if you picture like the typical waiting room, um, for like a gynecological care center, um, you would probably picture, um, like cis women, um, you know, filling up the waiting room, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so as a transmasculine person, even just going there, even just walking in the waiting room, um, is a super daunting task because you're surrounded by all of these uh, women who turn to you and see you there and they think, well, why are you here? Like you must be in the wrong place or you're here with your, with your partner or for your mom or sister or what. Um, and so you just you feel really out of place to begin with. Um, but it's a, it's a super uncomfortable um, you know, exam, obviously, as well. Uh, but I think that some of the things, you know, that I've kind of, um, you know, come to find to be some kind of helpful tips along the way, um, in terms of these appointments, um, is to kind of set the expectations for gendered wording and the correct pronouns with your care provider from the beginning. And so, because it's before the pants come off, Yeah, yeah, before the pants come off, because, it's not, it's not going to be a a great appointment for you regardless. Um, but if Mm -hmm. you can kind of feel there's anything that's going to make you feel a little bit better, it's at least being addressed the correct way. And then just kind of being asked to verbally walk through the procedure before it happens. So you know what to expect that way. It's not like, Oh my God, what's happening. Um, (laughs) ah, (laughs) just this huge panic. Um,
1: because it, it which I mean, to be honest, like uh, regardless of how you identify, um, like that would be nice yeah, for, for gynecologists <laughs> to do before a pelvic exam for anyone yeah, yeah. before they stick their hand up there. Exactly,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> um and you know bringing along a support person which is great for any doctors appointment mm-hmm. um they can act as like a backup if you need um if you need someone to help with the pronouns um or just to be there t- with you to help kind of debrief on what just happened afterwards you know because you might feel like you're in an extra state of vulnerability but one of the one of the big things about you know these appointments is really just Going and um, it's that's a really big thing within the trans community is just making these appointments. Um, mm-hmm. But once people start taking testosterone, um, they have an increased risk of endometrial hyperplasia. So then, thus from that, um, endometrial cancer, um, and then as well as ovarian cancer too. Um, And so it's typically recommended within the first five years or so of someone starting to take testosterone that they go and they have a hysterectomy or an ophorectomy and, sorry, the two of them. Which is
1: hysterectomy is removing the uterus, ophorectomy removing the ovaries. Sometimes it's just one or the other. Sometimes it's both. There's, There's a lot of different kinds of hysterectomies that you can
0: get get the medical dictionary here. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, although ovarian cancer only accounts for about 4% of all diagnosed cancers uh, in people who are assigned female at birth, uh, it's actually the fourth leading cause of cancer-related death for people with ovaries. Um, But if it's caught early, then the five-year survival rate for ovarian cancer is over 90%, so it's a great survival rate. Um, but 75% of ovarian cancer diagnoses for um, transmasculine people are made in advanced stages when the survival rate is really low. Um, and so, you know, just going in and having that appointment is huge.
1: Yeah. In uh, episode 27, I talked to Lee about his experience as a trans person in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And he talked kind of at length about why a lot of trans individuals actually wind up trying to avoid medical care altogether, which can definitely set you up for not having those preventative screenings that can catch things before they become a really big problem. Gynecological care is kind of a a uniquely uncomfortable and fraught specialty. Um, So it's kind of like even worse in in those circumstances. Definitely. Definitely.
0: Yeah, but there are a lot of things from you know the healthcare provider end that providers can do to make the appointment um, a lot better. From the start, it's always nice when there are LGBT people who are working at the doctor's office, and, and obviously that's not something um, that's always visible for a patient to, to know or to see. Um, But that really reduces the anxiety then of seeing the doctor who, you know, you don't know if they might be homophobic or transphobic because you already know that they're accepting. Um, So that's just Mm -hmm. kind of one anxiety level to be gone already. But another thing is kind of just knowing that, you know, trans trans people don't always use the same uh, language to describe our body parts that other people might. Um, And so kind of asking you know, well, what language do you want me to use or how how do you want me to talk about these different things? Definitely respecting names and pronouns, but also making you know, making a point to make sure the staff is educated about the LGBT community and so making sure that there are educational seminars available for for the office staff to be able to learn more about gynecological care for transmasculine people. Um and something that you know, I, I haven't been able to find very much about, but you know, having having a radiology department contact that does both pre-top surgery mammograms and post-top surgery mammograms, that's always kind of nice to be able to have a referral, um, so trans mm-hmm. people know that there's a center for them to go to for that.
1: Right, because you don't need to have breasts to have breast cancer, mm-hmm. which is a total bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, Planned Parenthood actually is the single largest provider of trans healthcare in the United States. Um, not every location offers trans services, but you can go um, online and see which locations do. And I obviously have not utilized those services, but I have heard from others that it's actually, you know, one of the best Healthcare experiences that they've had as a trans person, um, as a cis woman, Planned Parenthood has also been some of the best healthcare experiences <laughs> that I've experienced. So even, you know, if you live in an area where you can't necessarily find a, a doctor or a gynecologist who is trans friendly or at least not transphobic and trans hostile. <laughs> um, trans
0: hostile, so true.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I, Planned Parenthood can, but not always, be a good place to start as far as trying to find a provider who um, is more sensitive to these issues.
0: Definitely. And I think the fact that they, you know, they show and they list online which, uh, Which offices have what services available? uh, It's really nice so that you know we as patients can go and look and see. And for those of us who might be a little bit um, more shy or just less likely to to go in person or to call and ask about certain services, it's really Mm -hmm. nice that they have it all listed out and ready to go.
1: Yeah, and you can request uh, appointments online too, which is great because I'm one of those people who has. So much anxiety about making phone calls. (laughs) Um, If you have your gender marker legally changed on your driver's license, do you then also have to change it for your health insurance? Or can you wait a while? Do you know, like, how does that work?
0: I personally don't know the legalities of that. um, So I would not be the person to ask about that. I would go look on, like, Lambda Legal's website. Yeah. Um, So what's interesting with out here in Arizona, I know someone who... um, He went to the DMV to to have his his license updated and, you know, he's been taking testosterone for a while and his facial features have changed. He, um, you know, he, he's read as male, but he, you know, has chosen to not change his gender marker for health insurance purposes, but they changed his gender marker on his license to male because they read him as male, Mm -hmm. even though he checked off the female box and so then, because of that, now he has to deal with a bunch of, you know, signing up for the draft and, like, all sorts of other issues. Oh, no. Um, and so... Oh, God. um Yeah, and with, with the... Tra- I didn't even think about that. That's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, well, and with, with all the trans-military stuff that's just been passed, I was reading uh, the latest update on that, and if you were assigned female at birth but transitioned to male, you are not required to sign up for the draft, but... If you were assigned male at birth and transitioned to female, you still do have to sign up for the draft. So, Interesting.
1: (sighs) Interesting indeed. (laughs) Interesting indeed. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Um, Now, on a state to state basis, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this, like, can you, are are you able to legally change your gender in every state on your driver's license, or is that still a
0: bad question? Um, Like,
1: because I feel like,
0: it's still a state to state sort of thing, well, I, but I know that uh, birth certificate varies state to state. So that's not something that I've really like looked into a whole lot because I know that I'm not okay. going to change my gender marker. So I know in there are a couple states where you cannot change, right? Like it, they will not let you. I think like one might be like Ohio, and then like a couple other in the south. But most of the other ones, you have to have a letter from. Um, from a surgeon, like, after if you've had, like, top surgery or something like that, you know, the letter that says, like, this person has had, like, a irreversible gender-changing procedure.
1: Right. Interesting.
0: Um, and I
1: think Oregon is the only one where you can actually change your gender to non-binary. Yeah, I saw that recently. Which is a yeah. very new... Yeah.
0: So not everyone who's, like, trans is trans like within the binary so some people might identify as like female to male a trans man some people might just identify as trans so not with the gender they were assigned at birth some people might identify as trans masculine some people might identify as trans non-binary um, you know, there's a variety, there's no set way to be trans.
1: Right. And not everyone who is trans wants to get surgery or take hormones, right?
0: Yeah. Also don't have the language for, for being trans or what trans even means until later in life, or they don't have the safety to come out as trans. And so there's a whole, a whole variety of reasons, you know, around that, where they don't have access to the health resources to to medically transition, some people just socially transition, some people medically and socially transition, some people might have surgery and not take hormones, some people might take hormones and not have surgery. Um, And there are a variety of different ways to take hormones too. And so I think I would guess the most common type of hormone would be through intramuscular injection. But um, there's also you know, Androgel, which is a cream-like gel form you would rub on. There's also Testapel, which is these little um, pellets that are, like, implanted under your skin and last for, like, three or four months. And so each of them, they all kind of will have the same side effects of, you know, the deepening of the voice and the, the facial hair and the more masculinized fat redistribution and all of that. Um, and acne, <laughs> Um, but, um, they might have the side effects come on at a different pace. Um, but then there are also, you know, mood swings that come with each of the different forms and,
1: and hot flashes, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because I mean, it's not
1: a direct comparison, but a a sudden uh, change in your body's estrogen levels can kind of mimic a lot of the same stuff that happens when somebody goes through menopause. Yeah.
0: And, you know, not everyone takes the full recommended dosage too. Some people take low dose hormones because, you know, they don't want that full and as fast of a change. And so that's something that I think not everyone kind of realizes too. I think a lot of people think that change will happen, you know, overnight. And so um, there's a lot of documentation of the transition process on Instagram for sure. And that's great because you can't, be what you
1: can't see you know <laughs> and I think like a lot of people who aren't as uh or who, who maybe never had any sort of introduction to the trans community and think that like oh my god it's like an epidemic all of a sudden there's like all of these trans people <laughs> but like they've been here all along yeah. and you know some of them didn't feel safe to be out and some of them didn't even know until they you know saw themselves in something else yeah. Uh, People who are taking estrogen, they generally also take the hormone blocker, right? I believe so. Right. And so if you're taking testosterone, you don't need that additional hormone blocker.
0: But if you were a, um, if you were like a younger kid, like if you were um, in elementary school or like middle school um, and you were transitioning, you might just socially transition because at that young of an age, you're not going to be taking, um, hormones, but your, Mm -hmm. um, endocrinologist or doctor might have you on a hormone blocker. Um, that way it essentially prevents your first puberty. Um, so that you'll only then be going through the puberty of, um, the gender that you, um, identify with. So that would actually, um, prevent the need for, um, surgery later down the line. So let's say if you were, you know, assigned female at birth, but identify as, um, a boy and you're, you're like 11 years old and you are starting, your doctor can like just start to see that you might be going through like puberty. Um, your doctor can put you on, um, hormone blockers so that you don't go through, um, you don't go through female puberty that way you never grow. Um, your chest never grows. So then you don't have, um, you never have to have top surgery. And so then you will just eventually start testosterone.
1: Right. Once you're older. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is still highly controversial mm-hmm. in some circles. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Um,
0: <laughs> it's tough. I mean, I think, um, everyone, everyone knows and can like verbalize that they're trans at a different age. And so we have mm-hmm. some people who, um, you know, knew like as young as like when they were two and like started saying, you know, like, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, I'm a girl, whatever. Um, and some other people don't, you know, don't realize they're trans until, um, they're much older until they're like in their twenties. Um, and everyone, you know, realizes at a different age. And so we can't, don't think we can really stick to just one narrative and just one way of looking at things um, because every person is so different Um, and I think if we only stick with the narrative of um, well only people who are like real trans people knew when they were little um, I think that's really dangerous to other people Um, but I also think when people say well these kids are too um, they're too young to know you think about it like when, when when you were like seven years old like, you knew if you were, like, a boy or a girl, you know? If if you were saying that you weren't. And, like, otherwise, mm-hmm. like, you knew what you were saying. Um, but everyone is different. And so everyone knows themselves in a different way. So, like, who am I to say that um, someone isn't telling the truth?
1: Right. Or that they can't possibly know. That's a great answer. Um, the point that you made about having more than just a single trans narrative is so important because the, the dominant narrative, at least at this point in time is so much about being trapped in the wrong body. Mm -hmm. And I know several trans people who don't feel that way. Right. Um, and have never felt that way. And I know several trans people who do. And like, I, I, I've gotten to see different trans narratives in my own life and how, Variable they can be, and it's you know when it, when I put it in this perspective, it just seems so absurd that there would be one narrative about it or anything in general. You know, definitely. like we always want to simplify things and make things like this is this is what the deal with this thing is.
0: You know, definitely people come out at any age, and people mm-hmm. come out when they feel safe enough to do so, and when they have time to do so. Um, And so we really, you know, we can't, we can't trust one narrative. We have to believe people when they tell us. I think if we had more, more healthcare providers who were um, a little bit more educated on LGBT um, healthcare in general, then it wouldn't be, um, I think going to, going to the doctor wouldn't be as much of um, an anxiety. I mean, it still would be an anxiety, um, but we would be able to go with the knowledge that this provider um, already knows that I'm worried about these different things and they understand that um, even me just coming here um, is a really big deal and they understand my community. Um, They are going to respect me, for my name and my pronouns and um, I don't have to worry about, um, you know, going here and being... Uh, humiliated I can go and be just like any other patient and any other person Um, and I think as much as the appointment is going to be uncomfortable um, the human interaction side of it um, is what can um, neutralize it as much as possible
1: Yeah, I would also like to see trans people included more in medical research of menstrual disorders um we just have not even begun to crack the surface on that um so i just hope that uterus related things get a whole lot more funding and attention in the years to come than they do currently
0: you and abby can tackle that in your next podcast
1: yeah we're working on it you know (laughs) I would also like to see, and I'm sure this will happen, Um, these things take time, but um, better language just for for talking about uterus Mm havers or or people who used to have a uterus and don't anymore Um, because part of the reason that we do talk about it in such a gendered way and as a women's health issue is is that it's very uh, cumbersome to say it is a people who have estrogen and progesterone and, and maybe they used to have a uterus, but maybe they don't, but they did. And I mean, should we even be talking about this stuff generally? Is, is the lack of generalized terminology maybe a blessing in disguise because it kind of forces us to break down groups? Or are humans just inherently... Simplifying creatures, and so we need generalized language to be able to talk about that. but things. I think
0: that we could generalize it based off of the world's population that we are now recognizing um, mm-hmm. because it's not just simply a women's issue, right? Um, like is it is it really that hard to say people with periods or people who menstruate? Um, Which is know? what I usually do.
1: However, that's not exactly. an accurate term either i mean it is if we're talking specifically about menstruation but you know not everyone who has a uterus menstruates and not everyone who has ovaries menstruate and you know i I have gone very far out of my way to not menstruate and have continued to (laughs) menstruate despite all of my better efforts
0: (laughs) and then then Um, i think that trope of like well like women who can't like menstruate or get pregnant like aren't real women and then you know, it's like, we just, we need to throw all of this out the window.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically everything that we, we everything,
0: <laughs> everything we've
1: accomplished window. so far is lighted on oh, fire. Yes. Let's start over. Yes. Yeah. Cause I, I do see a lot of the terminology around reproductive health. I mean, I, I've kind of defaulted to just like reproductive health, <laughs> um, and, and speaking about these things as reproductive health issues, uh, because so much of the, Language that we use to talk about these issues does alienate so many groups, Mm -hmm. people who have fertility issues, people who don't necessarily identify as women, people who, you know, have menstrual disorders. Um, A lot of it is really just not helpful and leaves me wondering, like, so who is being included? (laughs)
0: <laughs> because
1: you know like i feel like i know so many people with menstrual disorders or fertility issues or you know gender identity stuff that like are alienated by this stuff that it to me feels like we're talking about this magical group of humans that like menstruate as they're supposed to and you know identify in a very specific way and can get pregnant as soon as they want to um, and a lot of our current language is failing yeah. so many of us. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Sickness and In Health. UterX is a collaboration between In Sickness and In Health and Ask Me About My Uterus for the 2016 MedX e storyteller track. There's still more to come, including my episode with Abby Norman about some of the controversies surrounding inclusive gynecological health care for trans and gender nonconforming individuals. We'll be talking about the future piece that she's writing about it for this project that will be up on Ask Me About My Uterus. Check out the Uterex project online at insicknesspod.com slash uterX. There you can find resources, including a glossary of terms and links to learn more about some of the stuff that we talked about in this episode. You can follow the podcast on social media at insicknesspod. And on Twitter, you can find Charlie at cblotner underscore. And find Abby at Abby M. Norman. And find Ask Me About My Uterus at menstrual maven. Uterex was executive produced, directed, edited, and hosted by Cara Gayle O'Regan. That's me. Charlie Blotner and Abby M. Norman are associate producers. Charlie Blotner was our editorial advisor, and, and Abby M. Norman is our feature writer. Uterex was researched by Cara Gayle O'Regan, Charlie Blotner, and Abby M. Norman. Charlie transcribed this interview, and the transcript is available on the episode page. Special thanks to Stanford Medicine X and Mark Freeman. Our music is by Vincent Tobolka. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.